Hello and welcome to another episode of the Back Check, the Hockey History Podcast, where we decide who belongs in the Hall of Fame and who doesn't. My name is Riley. Over there is Bill. Hey, how you doing? Good. How about you? I'm doing all right, thanks. And today we have a mostly a defensive forward episode. We're going to be talking about uh, Yeri Lennon, um, Guy Carboneau, who was just inducted a couple months ago and who who will be formally inducted in i guess a monthish or so yeah. uh and then our last player our old timer was not a defensive forward because who knows if they existed back then but is in the hall of fame for a weird reason that does not have to do with his career as a offensive hockey player so that was the best we could do for uh lumping him in with um with these guys, finding someone who was in for, for uh, reasons that are maybe not as readily apparent. So we're going to start with Eri Lennon, um, who played from 1995 to 2010, 14 seasons, uh, 10 of which are quality by points per game, and uh, who has, you know, a not super impressive offensive record, as uh, anyone who remembers him would probably know. He's only scored about 500 points um, in nearly 900 games. However, he is second among all Finns in NHL history in plus minus at plus 176. Wow. <laughs> and uh, he also, he doesn't have a lot of point shares. His average time on ice is fine. It's 19 minutes, though that wasn't obviously his whole career. So the reason he is even being debated has nothing to do with these things. It is as is probably apparent to anyone who's a fan of the sport because he has the same number of Selkie trophies as Guy Carboneau does, who we will be talking about shortly. But before we talk about those, uh, we are going to talk about his draft, as we always do. And he was drafted in 1992, the uh, Alexei Yashin-Roman Hammerlick draft. Ah, yes. And he was drafted um, 88th overall. Uh, and... Uh, Despite that, and despite his his mediocre career numbers, he is somehow fourth in goals, eighth in assists, and sixth in points, as well as first in plus minus by over a hundred, which is that's, crazy. Yeah, that's maybe not the greatest draft in the world. No, it it is not. Um, and just actually, since you say that, I just wanted to bring up the number seventh overall pick in this, which I was just looking at um, before we got online, was Ryan Sittler. Which is, who is Daryl Sittler's uh, son, who um, apparently, when he was drafted, made him and his father the only, at the time, the only father and son to ever have been drafted in the first round, or, or sorry, in, in the top ten of the, the entry draft. Wow. Ryan Sittler did not play an NHL game. It's Man alive. Um, and uh, so bloodlines. Anyway. Yeah, well, hey. You know what? It's it's one of those things we're starting to see in the NHL now where a lot of the guys that we grew up watching, their sons are becoming prospects and some of them are making it. And it yeah. it's it, it seems to be a little bit more now. They sort of, uh, their dads are able to impress upon them because at the tail end of their careers, conditioning started to matter so yeah. much yeah. that they're able to impress upon them. Like, look, if you want to be the best, you can have tons of talent but you're going to have to start working out like pretty much from the time you're 12, like an yeah. absolute maniac to have the stamina. Cause you have to not only have enough talent to make it to the NHL, but also the work ethic and the, the physical conditioning. Um, and that's, that's the problem with a lot of guys who don't stick. It's like, 
yeah, like you got, you got the hands, but like the skating's not good enough or like yeah. there's so many components that go into it now. And there's so many, there's so many different players now who've sort of caught on to that secret of like, Hey, how come Crosby can do things behind the goal line that nobody else can do? What's, what's his like conditioning regimen? Can I do something like that and yeah. make myself better? And it's, I mean, if you just look at Brad Marchand, um, whose name keeps coming up the last few days in my life for whatever reason, it's really pissing me off. <laughs> uh, but, but when he started to train with Crosby at Cole Harbor, cause they're both from Nova Scotia, all of a sudden his game took off like a rocket. Like he, he all of a sudden just got it or whatever didn't stop him from doing all the dirty rat things he does, but yeah. he became a much better hockey player. Um, yeah. So, I, you know, so I, I think a lot of the, the young kids who are coming up maybe don't have as much talent as their dad had, but they have that coaching from a young age of like, yeah. you better be in top peak condition if you want a shot at making it to be one of the, let's say thousand best players on the planet who squeak into the NHL for some games in their career. Yeah, I think you're probably right about that. Um, certainly in the past, there might have even been less of an emphasis on that if you were a kid of a famous player, right? If you wanted oh, to yeah. play, there probably was at least some assumption that like, oh, you just have natural talent and you might get the benefit of the doubt that another person who's exactly the same as you but without your famous last name yeah. um, might not. But who knows? I just thought it was funny because I was just like skimming and I was like, I wonder if Ryan Sittler's the son of Daryl. And sure enough, he was. <laughs> um, so we misspoke earlier and we said it was a really bad draft. It's not so much as a really bad draft as it is a, a draft full of defensive players and uh, also um, injured, injured players. Yes. So like there are a ton of players who played a thousand games, actually, uh, like eight of them. Um, but they are virtually like mostly defensemen or like uh, like defensively oriented forwards. So it's like the the list of thousand game players in the draft is Hammerlick, Gonchar, Adrian Coyne, Ian Lapierre, Kirk Maltby, Corey Stillman, Jason Smith, Stefan Yell. Oh, sorry, Stefan Yell didn't quite make a thousand. But like of those, only Corey Stillman is the player. Like of those guys, was a forward with a lot of like scoring you know yeah. like the rest of those guys and then you get down to straka uh, straka's at 954 games and like he's yeah. the only other guy in that top group of players who was like a real offensive threat and yash didn't play that much and you know there's other guys who had good years here and there like uh like anson carter but like whose careers were not that long and also like you know had like their best year was sort of a bit of an aberration or whatever yeah well and there's there's um there's a lot of uh, a lot of defensive defensemen that if you watched hockey during this era, you hear the name and you're like, oh, that guy was pretty solid. Like he was tough, yeah. he fought, he you know was pretty good as long as you didn't get him in a foot race. Like he was because yeah, back then you could be right, you could be a slow sort of slow slow and steady defenseman and be yeah. very effective. Um, and then there's a few there's a few goalies sprinkled through there that who uh, you know will remember the name Steve Passmore, Manny Fernandez. Oh, yeah. And then way back at 204, Nikolai Habibulin. Yeah, yeah. Um, but mostly it's like third and fourth liners, some role players, um, yeah. some guys who just had a brief flash of like, oh, that guy's really good, and then just never kind of kept it up for long enough. Um, so, but yeah, there's a lot of names. If you played the old hockey video games during that era, you recognize a lot of these names. Yeah, um, yeah. For sure. Um, but it does beg the question, and it's funny we're having this conversation right now because I actually had this conversation 
with someone on Facebook years ago. Um, for some reason, I think maybe Roman Hammerlick was retiring, and I just like threw out a like, you know, who was the best player in the '92 draft because yeah. he was retiring, and like, you know, there I had a contentious argument with somebody um, whether it was Hammerlick, a coin, or Leydenen. Um, because like the thing is, Leydenen is the one with the hardware here, you know. Yes. I mean, you got you got Pekka as well, who has Selkies, so you could throw him in there. And not or, to say that, sorry, or Sergey Gonchar as well. Yeah, that's true. Well, Gonchar, yeah, and I don't know how I missed him when we were having this conversation before, but Gonchar arguably had the best career in yeah. some ways. You know, if you're gonna like, I mean, Yashin, he's a whole who knows what to do with him, but like, um. You know, there's there's a there's a few people you could have this conversation about, but like the fact that Leiden, who only scored 500 points, is even in that conversation at some level, is uh, either a testament to the low quality of the draft or uh, or a testament to Leiden, and I'm not sure which, or maybe some combination thereof. Yeah, well, um, it's it's starting to look like if it's not Leiden or Gonchar or um, Habibulin, I don't know if there's going to be a Hall of Famer from this class. Yeah, yeah, because like, had Yashin like had a different career, mm-hmm. presumably oh, yeah. he would be a candidate because of, but had with the whole sitting out, the ridiculous contract, yes. the terrible minus, all yeah. that stuff. I mean, he's certainly one of the more, um, I don't know about now, but back then was one of the more unpopular players among fans. Oh, yeah. Uh, so. Yeah. Uh, don't forget when you sit out in the NHL, you can do it in almost every other sport and they're not yeah. too mad at you, but uh, the NHL does not forgive. And it's it's not even just like the Senators fans. It's like the whole league's like, why are you doing a thing like that? And yeah, obviously, yeah. obviously with our the RFA sort of uh, stalling that's going on now, I don't think anyone thinks that way anymore. But back then yeah. it was like, how dare you? You make millions. Yeah. Um, just get yeah, out Yeah, well, if you, if, yeah. You, if you sat out for the whole season, people don't forget. If you if you sit out for a, a few games, it seems like people are easily forgiving because you know Gilmore, for example, missed some time, and like I don't think anyone remembers that anymore. No, well, also he's Dougie Gilmore, right? Like, yeah, that's true. His legend, pretty. You know, right now a lot of people, I'm sure, still are remembering about William Nylander, and if he does not have a good next year, that is not going to be good for him. Oh yeah, um, yeah. You know, reputation wise. And- yeah. Uh, legacy, legacy-wise, if he's going to have one. Yeah, absolutely. Of course, then again, win one cup and it goes away. <laughs> absolutely, absolutely, it would all go away. Um, so he he looks not bad in his draft, even though he has so few points. But when we get to era, um, Layden looks really not great because, of course, he we're not talking about him due to his offensive ability. But anyway, we're going to mention it. So. Um, 125 players played at least 820 games between 95 and 2010, which is 10 full seasons or slightly less than Leighton played in his career. And he is 43rd in goals, 79th in assists, and 62nd in points. <laughs> and and also 68th yeah. in point shares. However, he is 5th in defensive point shares uh, among forwards. Um, and the other guys who are above him play, just wow. played longer than he did. And he's also sixth in plus minus, despite being like you know sixty second in points. So he was either on some good teams or he was doing something right. Um, 
his 82 game average is 48 points per 82 games, which is not great, but he's also plus 16 per 82 games, which is pretty damn good. Um, his his three-year peak is marginally better, but uh, in terms of 51 points per 82 games, but plus 29, almost plus 30, um, which is, you know, ridiculous. Uh, and it's uh, also, it's worth noting that he did, he has some possession stats for the last three years of his career. Um, when he was in his mid-30s, he was a positive possession player, uh, quite quite decent, uh, 54.8 Corsi 4 and 54.3 Fenwick 4. So that means that's like not quite elite, but it's like very close. And uh, like 55% and, yeah. uh, and above is basically elite. But like the thing is, is uh, that's, you know, that's his age 34, 35 and 36 seasons we're talking about there. So presumably his probably his worst his worst possession numbers, you would assume. Um, he has 29 points in 108 playoff games. So again, his, uh, you know, not a lot of good offensive numbers in the playoffs. He is helped by adjusting for error, which is not a surprise because he, he played in the dead buck era, right? He was drafted in, in uh, 92 and he came over in 95. Or, um, and, uh, you know, so he played a huge chunk of his career, almost entire career in the dead buck era. And it bumps him up four points to a 52.82 game average. And he was never traded. So... The reason we are talking about him is because he won the Selkie three times in 98, 99, and 03. And he was top five in Selkie voting another three times. Um, and I should uh, look that up. In uh, 97, 90, oh, sorry, 2002, and what was it? Oh, maybe it was only two more times. Sorry. Oh, no, no. And then 06 as well. So, um, you know. In addition to winning it three times, he was perpetually thought of as one of the better defensive forwards in the league. I mean, he was nominated for a Selkie in... He was at least on the the ballot in all but two of his seasons in the league. And the first one, presumably, people just didn't know who he was and so didn't think about it. I don't know. I mean, he was playing in Dallas, right? I mean, that's the thing, too. Like... uh, I don't think you realize what an important part of those great stars teams he was. And that era being so uh, clutch and grabby, like you needed that guy to keep in a series like that. And it was really, uh, everybody always remembers that the Red Wings and Avalanche, but Dallas inserted themselves in it um, for a good while there where it's like, uh, it's going to be one of those three teams that comes out of the West and Dallas would just, you know, if they could get by the Oilers, then they would yeah. just give those teams that make scoring absolute fits because they could all play defensively. Cox yeah. was a very smart defensive coach. Yeah, yeah, and and you know he he, uh, I mean he was he was a huge part of that and and was was recognized for it. Like I said, basically every year from '96 to 2009. He was at least getting votes, um, though. Though in the last season there, he was fiftieth on the ballot, which presumably would be, or in voting rather, not on the ballot, but in voting, which would probably be last, I would assume. But um, yeah, so I mean, that's the reason we're talking about him, you know. And, and he doesn't have a, a great um, 
you know, he doesn't have a lot of uh, offensive accomplishments. He scored 30 goals twice, which is uh, more than, you know, you might think for a defensive specialist, but he was not a passer, right? He was very much a goal scorer. Um, he only scored 50 points once. He yeah. had once all-star game appearance. So, you know, not not aside from the Selkies, there's not a lot of accomplishments. However, he did uh, he did have some some team success, to put it mildly. Um, so he, of course, was uh, one of the top three forwards on the '99 Stars, who technically officially won the the Stanley Cup, but who, as we like to remember, you know, there's an asterisk there. Um, and he was also at least when he was uh I'm amazed you just didn't like start like <laughs> you know saying like foot in the crease foot in the crease immediately when I mentioned it. Um he also uh he was playing in a a a top three role on the team that that won the next year or that didn't win the next year that that um lost in the final However, he he was hurt a lot, and he missed 10 games in in the 2000 playoffs. So uh, when he was playing, he was playing first-line minutes, but he uh, he, you missed 10 games. So, Um, and then he, you know, the stars were were good for a while. So he also he made it into uh, two conference finals in '98 and also in 2008. And that 2008 team. I don't know why. I have fond memories of the 2008 Dallas Stars in the playoffs, and I, I have no, I can't explain it. Um, I still think about them sometimes. <laughs> it's irrational. I like, really? Yeah, I don't. I have no. I have no explanation for it. I remember like <laughs> being really, really impressed with uh, with Brendan Morrow of all people in that series, in those playoffs. Oh. Like he, like he was the best like stretch of his yeah, career. I feel I like. Just... And Tur- yeah, Turco yeah, was also. There was like a five year stretch where he was probably. Like there was a five year period where he was probably the, the most well-rounded power forward in hockey. Um, with, you know, with obvious, obviously Jerome McGinley was a better all-around power forward. He had that amazing goal scoring ability, but. I would say, like, his entire game right up there in, in a era of, like, a, a surefire Hall of Famer, but for a much shorter time period of his career because he just sort of ran out of gas. But there was a while there. He was really good. And I just remember something about that that team. Like, Robodeau was in his prime as well. And, like, I don't know. I just I, – and I thought they were actually I, – I really thought they were going to go further than they did. Um, they lost the Red Wings that year, um, which is probably also when I like that's when I first watching that Red Wings star series is probably when I was like really, really aware of how good the that era Red Wings team was. Um, anyway, uh, yeah. that has nothing to do with Layden and because he was at that point, he was playing a less important role, um, but he was on that team as well, which I have weird fond memories about. Um, but the thing about Layden is because he was. In the NHL and Finnish, he was regularly called upon to play on Finnish teams. And the Finns um, were a little infamous for giving people fits, despite their uh, their lack of population. And so Leiden has quite the um, 
quite the world uh, international resume for someone who who didn't actually win a lot of things in terms of actual titles but won lots of like consolation medals right so he he yeah. was a top three forward on an olympic bronze medalist in 98 he was a top six forward on olympic runner a uh, silver medalist in 2006 he had a role uh, of some kind on a bronze medalist in 94 um, and he had another uh, he was a role player as well on a Olympic bronze medalist in 2010 even as late as 2010 which he I believe he had already well I guess that was right when his final year of um, playing the NHL and that's not all he was also a, a top three forward on the the Finnish team that uh, finished second in the World Cup in 2004 oh, yeah. and uh, he was a top six forward on a, and actually he won an actual gold medal in the world championships in 1995 and a silver in 94. And, uh, he also, uh, won two more silvers where he had less of an important role on, in the world championships in 92 and 2007. So like 15 years apart, basically he was regularly called on by Finland to play at elite level and his team did well, as well as a team, a country of like four or 5 million people could do. Um, and he was an important part of that. Yeah. Uh, and I mean, that's a lot of international success. Uh, it really is. Yeah. He's got lots of medals, like lots and lots of medals. And some of that is just, you know, he was, you know, they were, the Finns didn't have like, aside from Solani, you know, at that particular period, the Finns didn't have like really a lot of high end offensive talent. Right. So like, if my memory is correct, their, their big thing was always like, they, always frustrated the hell out of everybody else yeah. by, by playing good defensive hockey. And Leiden was a crucial part of that. Yeah. And, and uh, a more physical brand of it as well. Like sort of like, you know, Sweden would sit back and play, play the trap and, or, you know, use the, the torpedo where they all sit back and then one guy just kind of skates around and tries to get open for a breakaway. And, but Finland would play you hard. They would dump and chase, um, but they would also trap you. Like they, they, they play, I, I'd say probably still to this day, their pro league plays the most similar style to the NHL um, yeah. over in Europe. Like they, they like to hit and they like to be physical. They like to set the tone. Um, and uh, you know, their, their cycle games usually good. Their players are usually very strong. Um, well, the other thing, sorry to interrupt, but the other yeah. thing is, is I don't, and I don't know how true this is, but I was always told when I was younger that they were the first country to teach everyone to skate backwards. Ah, and so one of the reasons they were so versatile and able to play a defensive game is because all the forwards could switch to defense at any time. Now, they weren't necessarily going to be good, yeah. but they could do it because yeah. they all knew how to skate backwards and that it took years for other countries to start doing the same thing. I don't know if that's true. I don't even remember where I heard it, but someone told me that. Wow. In reference yeah. to Sammy Kapanen specifically. <laughs> oh, yeah. Who was playing defense one day? Yeah, and he was pretty good at it. Yeah. Um, yes, it, uh, there's a lot of things I think that they they do a little bit differently than the other European nations, um, and uh, being being such a small uh, small hockey nation uh, in terms of population, not in terms of the quality of player they produce, because every once in a while they produce one that's a lights out Hall of Famer. Um, I, I think typically a lot of those kids. And I'm sure it's the same for Sweden, but on a, to a lesser degree, a lot of those kids grow up playing together. They're if they're elite, they're on the same team 
Yeah. By and large, you know, a few a few guys on the bubble might switch, but like the core players play together for their entire you know youth growing up until they're drafted into the nhl so um they have a cohesiveness to their teams when they play internationally like oh i've played with that guy before it's been a couple of years but i remember him like it takes you know two practices and they're back on the same page so i think that was uh, a a benefit and if you know if a country like finland had had let's say two more stars of solani's uh solani's ilk which you know it's really easy to say just you know grow a couple more 600 goal scorers yeah but, yeah but if, if they had had a couple more game breakers, like they would have been a, like an even more difficult out than they already were. Um, yeah. And it's, it's kind of the way I, I think uh, Switzerland has grown into that now where they don't necessarily have a game breaker, but they all play hard. They all play together. They all play a certain sort of system and they, they give team Canada fits no matter how good our team is just like, oh, that's going to be a three, two game for sure. <laughs> like it's just pretty much, you can just pencil it in three, two in a shootout. Um, and I, 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 my memory is, you know, on international hockey outside of the olympics and the world juniors is a little hazy from back then but uh i, I distinctly think of finland as that one like oh man we got to play the Finns. yeah we'll probably too. win but it's going to be really hard <laughs> like every time um and and they have half the population of sweden so what you were saying about them all knowing each other would be even more true right yeah, exactly. because they just they would just all be you know the, there just wouldn't be a big enough pool to have like more elite teams than just whatever the one was. So yeah, um, yeah. I mean, and I I agree with you too about the international stuff. I always remember uh, dreading uh, Finland, either having finding out Finland was in the. I mean, the same way I felt about the Czechs in many ways. Oh my god. Um, you know, you know, if if like they were in our pool or. Uh, or we had to meet them in, in one of the earlier rounds, you know, cause you sort of like, you know, it was always the expectation that we would, we would get to the, to the, the medal round or get to the final. But then like, sometimes they, these teams would have these games and, and yeah. it's frustrating to hell you. And with those teams too, it, it was, um, they each had that absolute stud superstar like lock lock hall of famer basically by the time he was in his third year in the nhl just with how yeah. good he was you know the checks had yager and then yeah. they just played a really tight team game and they knew they had their game breaker if they really needed him and the same thing with the Finns and solani if solani was there obviously because he yeah. also was in the playoffs yeah. uh some years um like that's a really good system to have if you have that one guy who's pretty much I want to say pretty much a lock to score a goal a game in a big game. Like it's just almost yeah. impossible to shut them down. If you can keep that score like one, nothing or two, one, you got a real mm-hmm. chance. Like, um, and both those countries were really good at that. And also helps having uh, you know, Dominic Hasek also might've helped the Czechs. Yeah. That might've helped <laughs> a little yeah. more successful in terms of winning tournaments. Um, thank God Finland didn't have a guy like that at the time. It would have been a big trouble. <laughs> yeah. 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 Absolutely. So, um, do you, how do you feel about uh, Layden and being in the Hall of Fame or not being in the Hall of Fame? Um, I don't know. I feel like I feel like Carbo might set a precedent where he does get in because I feel he fulfilled pretty much the same role of just grit, character, did everything right, was part of so many big moments for his team. Um, Actually, I was just uh, I was just reading a thing the other day about a game that I remembered, and I'm I'm quite fond of it because it makes Chris Osgood look very Oz bad. Um, <laughs> but it was it was a, a game in the playoffs, and Detroit was up two one with about two minutes left, and Carbono had this incredible shift where he just 
I think he realized this is probably my last year before I retire and just went, or maybe one of his last years before he retired. And he just went like a buzzsaw, got the puck a couple of times, and then finally scored this goal from like an impossible angle um, to force overtime. And then in overtime, Lettinen dug it out of the corner, fed it up. And Langenbrunner shot it from like center and it went right into the net in overtime. It's like, whoa, that one's... <laughs> um, and I particularly remember that goal because I was sitting around with my, my friend Drew, who's a massive Red Wings fan. And he's like, we're, we're going to win this in overtime. You'll see. I'm like, nah, it sucks. He's going to let one in from center. Probably be like letting in or Langenbrunner or somebody like that. And then it happened. We're like, that was weird. <laughs> like five minutes later, like it was really, it was quick. I was like, ooh, that's kind of spooky. Um, and then the Red Wings won the next series. Uh, the, the, the next game and won the series. And Osgood had a shutout. So um, <laughs> even though I like to poop on him as much as possible, I, I'll suggest that he had almost nothing to do with that just because I don't like him. But uh, yeah. <laughs> I'm going to bet, I'm going to bet he stopped like 10 shots. Um, <laughs> but it, it's just like, there's Lettinen being part of an important playoff moment and Carbono in the same game. Right. So to yeah. me, that was like a, a nice little, like, yeah, they kind of were the same player. Like if they, when the game's on the line, he's the kind of guy you want out there because he just works his butt off and he's so good defensively, you know, you're not going to get scored on. It's yeah. you might be able to score. Like he's sort of that lockdown kind of guy. Um, and it, I, I think in a way, like if uh, if um, if Boston, let's say, had kept Mark Savard for many years, maybe yeah. Bergeron wouldn't have developed into the offensive role that he has become. And he might have been one of these guys where it's like you you can't beat the guy like when he's on the ice, his team's so much better, but he's kind of like undervalued because he doesn't put up a bunch of points. But instead, mm-hmm. he ended up and I, I think for a while it was sort of like him and Krejci were both about the same um in terms of points but of course Bergeron's a much better defensive player but then you know without Savard it's like well Bergeron had to take the step forward and be the big guy on the first line and I I think that's helped his you know he's a slam dunk no problem uh, because he gets the points but I think if you know if Savard had stayed healthy and been that 90 point center maybe he wouldn't have had the opportunities to pump up those numbers and maybe he would have been a guy that we look at like Lettinen where it's like the guy's got three or four selkies like how do you not put him in but the numbers are really not helping his case. Yeah. So. Yeah, I'm. I'm actually going to reserve judgment um, on Leiden just because uh, I agree with you about Carbono setting a precedent, and I kind of want to talk about that a little bit. Uh, so I'm going to reserve judgment until we get to Carbono. Okay. Um, let's both do the same then. Yeah. Um, so Carbono, he played for way, way, way longer than Leiden did. Um, in fact, 500-ish more games. Four or five hundred ish more games. He played for 19 years. Uh, so Leiden, who played for 14 years, he missed a lot of games. I didn't mention that, but he did. He uh, Leiden uh, never played a full season in his career, and he had lots of game, uh, lots of seasons in the like less than 70 games world. You know, um, a good one, two, three, four, five, six, seven. So half of his career, Leiden didn't even make it in the 70 games. So Carboneau played only five more seasons, but played, you know, well over that in terms of actual, like, NHL seasons more. Yeah. Um, more like six or seven more. Um, nine of which we would consider quality by points per game, but of course he is not a player known for racking up the points. Um, he only had 663 points, so more than Landon, but that's in 1,318 games. Um Plus 186 is 10 more than Leiden. Uh, also, weirdly, 
This one really surprised the hell out of me. Carbono has fewer point shares. Really? Than Leyden does. Now, wow. so some of that is very explainable because uh, they are weighted uh, more towards goal scorers than passers. And Carbono was always a better passer than he was a goal scorer. Whereas Leyden was like not a passer at all, right? Like he... Uh, He's, his his numbers, Leidenin's numbers are like almost as many goals as assists, which usually means, you know, not much of a passer. And Carbonos are, are not quite double assist to goals, but it's, it's you know, one and a half times or something. Um, Carbono was drafted 44th overall in the 1979 entry draft. And uh, unlike Leidenin, he is not one of the best players in his draft, at least by offense. Um, that is the uh, Rob Ramage draft. Um, yes, however, it featured which, some Hall of Famers. Should have been the Wayne. Should have been the Wayne Gretzky draft, by the way. Yeah, should have been the Wayne Gretzky draft. And actually, I saw a really not to get too far off um, tangent, but I saw an interesting post on Hockey's Future, the uh, history forums, where they were talking about like why the NHL couldn't like draft pro players from the WHA, but they could draft pro players from like leagues around the world. Yeah. Um, I'm sure there's a explanation, something to do with the fact that they were directly competing, but it is, it was an interesting thing and I should have followed through on reading more about it. Anyway. Um, oh, sorry. I, I can give you a quick summary of why Gretzky wasn't drafted. Um, sure. He, he had, a, he had signed a, he had signed, I believe it was a 15 year personal services contract with the Oilers uh, owner, Peter Pocklington. Yeah. Um, and, um, uh, he was supposed to be eligible for the 79 draft because they lowered the draft age. Um, yeah. But uh, he had that personal services co- contract. The NHL just basically said, oh, that, that contract will be voided and he'll be expected. But Gretzky was like, I'm going to have to play for the Colorado Rockies if I go into the draft. So he didn't void his contract with Pocklington. He'd rather stay with the Oilers. And as a result, the NHL basically said, okay, we'll let you keep Gretzky. And it's like this guy, like everybody knew Wayne Gretzky was the you know, next Bobby Orr, I guess you would say at the time, right? Or, or at least yeah. Pete Lafleur. Yeah. Just thinking purely of a forward. Yeah. Um, like a lights out slam dunk, you know, going to play 15 years as a number one winger. And he, he, people have been talking about him since he was eight years old. He scored like, what, three, 400 goals. Um, uh, so, so the Oilers agreed that uh, got to keep Gretzky. So they basically got the first overall pick and then they, they dropped to the bottom of the, of the draft order. So they drafted last in every round. Oh, okay. Yeah, but they still got the first overall pick, which is Wayne Gretzky and like and the ultimate generational player. So also drafted uh, Mark Messier, Messier and, and Glenn Anderson. Yes. Um, well, I, and, you know, so maybe they don't. Maybe they don't end up with all those guys if there's not that sort of Gretzky sort yeah. of loophole thing going on, right? That's very. It's a very good point. It's a very very good point. So this draft, as we're alluding, is uh, stacked. Um, Hall of Famers: Mark Messier, Ray Bork. Mike Gartner, uh, Glenn Anderson, Asterix. Uh, um, and then, like, lots of other guys. Uh, Michelle Goulet. Dale Hunter, Kevin Lowe, Brad McCrimmon, Neil Broden, like you said, Goulet, Mike Ramsey, Rob Ramage, as we mentioned, Mike Felino, Brian Prop, Dave Christian, Laurie Boschman. It's ridiculous. Like, John Ogrodnik, um, Mike Krushelinski. Crucial Niski, I can never do that right. Yeah. Rick Wythe. Thomas Dean. 
Thomas Steen, yeah. Um, Dirk Graham. Paul Reinhardt. Mats Nasland. Like, just ridiculous. Stacked. It is, it's so much better than the other draft we were looking at. Um, what, seven or eight players to score a thousand points? One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, seven. Messier, Bork, Gartner, Goulet, Anderson, Hunter, and Prop. And then Broden had 923. Um, so, yeah. Also, an- another interesting note, and it comes back to Gretzky. Um, a certain Bill McCreary was drafted in this draft, number 114. Oh, that's funny. Um, and, uh, but it was not the Bill McCreary, the referee. It was his cousin. Oh, okay. I didn't know that. But, but he's most remembered for laying an open ice hit on Wayne Gretzky <laughs> on January 3rd, 1981. Because no one ever hit Gretzky. He was the first time anybody tried to hit him really hard. And Gretzky was on the ice for uh, several minutes. Um, uh, and uh, there was a myth that he never played another shift in the NHL. Not true. That was the second game of his 12-game NHL career. So he played another 10 games. And then never played again. <laughs> well, people know his name, though. Yes. So, as you might imagine for a draft... It has seven players with a thousand points and a ton of players, I don't know, 20 with a thousand games. Uh, Carboneau is not high on the, uh, you know, he, he doesn't rate well <laughs> compared to no. his. So he's 15th in goals, 14th assists, 14th in points, but he's eighth in plus minus. And he's fifth in games played. Um, so that's, you know, that's something at least. Um, and, uh, you know, he did, he did have a lot of uh, endurance. Um, he looks even worse when we do ERA um, yeah. because, of course, just like just like Layden and, you know, this is a guy who is that was not his skill set. So if you so only 10 players made into 1,312 games between 80 and 2002, which is a roughly 16 full seasons. No, it's not roughly. It's exactly 16 full seasons. Um, and he is second last in goals. He's last in assists. He's last in points. He's seventh in plus minus. He's last in offensive point shares. He is sec- the second forward in defensive point shares. And I believe first is Gretzky only because Gretzky would get more credit for that. Not Point shares, is, especially defensive point shares, is really rough. So a lot of that is just like related to plus minus and, and Gretzky would have, you know, a ridiculous one. I don't know what it is off the top of my head. But basically, it doesn't make him look good because offensively, you know, he was far and away the the least good of uh, the players who played in uh, in that many games over that period. Yeah. His 82 game average is 41 points uh, per uh, um, per 82 games, and this is where I want to start sort of picking at this a little bit. Is Leidenin's is 48, and Leidenin played in a way harder to score era. Yeah. So that's the first thing where I'm wondering about this. Um, now, Carbono's peak is better, uh, 57 points per 82 games, which is significantly better than um, Leidenin's. It was, on the other hand, in the late 80s and early 90s when everyone was scoring. Um, adjusting for era really, really hurts him. It knocks uh, it knocks him down to 37 points per 82 games, which is like the lowest of any forward we've talked about um, that wasn't an old timer for for an error adjustment for a single season. 
that we since we've been doing the show, I think easily, right? I yeah. can't imagine we've talked about another forward who wasn't an old timer who uh, who didn't even have forty, like who wasn't even a half a point per game player when you adjust for era. Um, and yeah, so uh, so offensively, we know he was not a star. Um, he was traded twice for uh, two people that I am unfamiliar with, uh, including one of Neil Broden's brothers, the least famous Broden brother, basically. <laughs> Um, so I don't know about you. I don't know if you want to talk about the trades, but the trades seem really, um, they seem, first of all, very bad for the teams that traded away Guy Carboneau. Uh, yes. But but otherwise, uh, I don't know if there's much to say. Um, they both happened uh, very close together. Yeah, well, um, one thing about Carboneau is we talk about that 79 NHL entry draft. If you go back and you look at his junior stats, he was like an absolutely dominant junior player. He had 141 points in his draft year. Um, and the year after in his plus one draft year had 182 points. Jesus. Um, and then followed that up with um, some time with the Nova Scotia Voyageurs out in the AHL. And he had 88 points in his first season and 94 in his second. Yeah. Um, so he could score. Yeah. So he could really could score until he got to the NHL and joined the powerhouse Montreal Canadiens where there were guys above him in the lineup. And Montreal played a very different, more defensive style. Um, and then his numbers are always solid. He's about a 20, 25 goal guy. He's going to get uh, 50-ish points uh, in most seasons. But he also won three Selkies, uh, where he was generally recognized as the, t- the top defensive forward. Kind mm-hmm. of took over the mantle of Bob Gainey as yeah. Bob Gainey started to slow down in Montreal and Bob Gainey was the captain. So, I mean... He he was an instrumental part of why Montreal was so hard to play against during that era, an era in which they won two cups. Um, but a lot of people in Montreal revere him for going like, you could have been a one-trick pony offensive guy and just like been, you know, like sort of said, hey, I'm an offensive guy. I want to get traded. I want to go to a different team where I can, you know, play on this first or second line and put up my points. But instead he doubled down and learned how to play better defensive hockey um, and, and became so good at it that he won the Selkie three times. It was such a key part of those Canadians teams. Um, and then that brings me to the trade. So, um, he was infamously traded for Jim Montgomery, um, in Montreal. Uh, and I'll give you three guesses as to the reason why he was traded. Salary. Uh, would be one guess. No, no, the, the people of Montreal would not stand for such a, especially when they all they drink is Molson and <laughs> they're like one of the richest families in Quebec. Um, okay. Uh, keep in mind, I've never lived there. So maybe yeah, I'm missing out a, a, a key thing in the psyche. Um, he, uh, I mean, he speaks French, so it's not that. Um, I don't know. I'm, I'm failing at this completely. Yeah, sure. it was a huge story in Montreal. Um, the trade in Montreal beca- came because he gave the finger to a journal, journal de Montréal photographer who was uh, lurking in the tree-lined fairways when he was playing a round of golf with uh, Patty Roy and uh, Vinnie Dalton. That's why they traded him? Yep, and he was the Canadians' captain, a position of utmost reverence in the province. Um, and that incident happened three days after they got eliminated from the playoffs in '94. Um, and they had just won the cup the year before. So a lot of people were expecting a very deep playoff run, at least again. Um, 
And uh, and then he uh, the photo in question of him flipping the bird appeared on the front page of the journal the next day, and Garbino uh, Garbino got uh, got let go. <laughs> they got that is him. really dumb. Uh, hey, that's Montreal at the time, right? Yeah. Um, and it's interesting too because Carbonell was like, you know, I'm I'm disappointed the newspaper put that, and it's not very professional. You know, we're out there playing golf, like it's not like we're not out on the public street sort of thing. You know, like yeah, you're yeah. sneaking around in the bushes. Um, then basically he's like, you know, I hope the fans don't think that was directed at them. I saw the photographer, I was flipping him off. Um, but when Montreal, uh, when Montreal gets the way they get, that's the way it goes. So that's, I had no idea. I'd never heard of that. Um, yeah. I was not, I mean, I was, a, I was watching hockey at the time, but it was only yeah. because the Leafs were in the playoffs yeah. and actually 94, I would have been right. Nope. No, I had stopped actually. Cause it was 93 when I was really paying attention then I stopped so yeah i mean i never i never heard about that that is really stupid uh, <laughs> and really very montreal yeah yeah montreal, montreal has a tendency to do that because um as as much as it's 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 a hockey team there's that old expression right like you know there's there's two religions in quebec there's the catholic church and there's the montreal canadians yeah. it, it is viewed as sort of like um uh like you want to protect that reputation that image that sort of uh I guess, I guess, like dignity of the franchise, yeah. um, you know, and you have a guy like Jean Beliveau as your ambassador for 40, 50 years, kind of like instills this, like uh, much in the way the Yankees used to be before Steinbrenner kind of went nuts. And then when they got yeah. Jeter and those guys, they kind of went back to it. Right. Like we do, we do yeah. things a certain way here. And if yeah. you're not part of it, you're going to get shipped out right quick. Like we don't care. Like, yeah. you know, so there's uh, I think I think that was the most. Um, there, there was an uproar of like a Montreal Canadiens captain should not behave that way. And yeah. a lot of people might've taken it as sour grapes that they'd just been knocked out of the playoffs too. Um, yeah. But there's a certain thing in Montreal where it, it's, it's, I think you have to live here to get it, but like the, it's not just a hockey team. Yeah. Um, for many years as a non Montreal fan living in Montreal, that annoyed the crap out of me, but I've come to sort of respect it where it's like, people really do really do see it as like a huge part of their lives and yeah. it's it's uh anything that's against the team or embarrasses the team is basically sacri sacrilegious at uh in this province so yeah um, so i i didn't even realize until we were i was doing this that he had actually uh, even been on the blues because for me i only remembered him on the stars and then of course i knew he'd been on the Habs, but i didn't yeah. know that he'd been on the blues until i looked it up and then so he was, you know, he was traded to Dallas not that long after, right? Like a year and a bit, basically. Yeah. Um, after a season in which he was hurt, partially. Uh, missed a lot of games. Oh, no, no, sorry. I'm an idiot. He didn't miss a lot of games. That was the lockout's shortened season. He actually played in most of them. Hmm. But I guess for whatever reason, um, the Blues decided to move on and traded him for, you know, uh, a brother of Neil and Aaron Burden, who was yeah. not either of them <laughs> and they were a little old at that point anyway yes um so yes as we've mentioned he won three selkies uh so he's the same number of laden he also unlike laden he was top five uh in selkie voting six other times so laden was three other times i think yeah and uh however weirdly Something I find really interesting is after he was traded out of Montreal, he was only ever uh, got votes again one other season. 
And so that always, for me, that kind of thing raises the question again of like East Coast media bias. Because it's like, was was Carboneau really that much worse? Was he playing so much less? Or was it like the people who had voted for him all these years were no longer watching him because he was on Dallas? And I don't know. Yeah, that, that, that whole East Coast, West Coast bias. But I, I, I feel like at that point, maybe he wasn't... Well, he was older and he was scoring less than he used to. Yeah, and, and maybe he was just viewed as like sort of the... I think maybe it's interesting that these careers have such parallels, but he played on the same team as Lettinen, so maybe Lettinen's the, the new Carbo and he's become the elder statesman defensive forward Bob Gainey, who just well, provides leadership and clutch play and all exactly, those yeah. things. Exactly, you know? so it's, yeah. So it's really interesting to see the parallels between the two. Well, because he got traded he got traded to Dallas right right when uh, Lettinen came in the league. Yeah, exactly. And so, you know, Dallas's decision probably was like, we have this guy with better legs who does yeah. the same thing, you know, like, yeah. so but, let's but play him further up. Must, you'd have to imagine Lettinen must have learned quite a bit from Carbo, you yeah. think. Right? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So, um, as Bill, you hinted at, uh, Carbono has some uh, more consistent offensive accomplishments than Lettinen does. He didn't score as many goals, like he didn't have many 30-goal seasons, but he scored 20 goals five times, and he scored 50 points five times. So that's still not a lot out of 19 years, but like, you know, that's a lot more than Leighton and did Leighton and never even, did Leighton even have 50 points once? Once, or twice, sorry. Um, now, of course, Carboneau was playing a lot of that time in, in uh, you know, the highest scoring era ever. Um, so... Uh, where am I? I got a place. So uh, the other thing that Carboneau has overlaid in is the cups. Um, he won. They both won a cup together uh, in '99. Uh, but of course, Carboneau won uh, two others in '86 uh, and in '93. And unfortunately, because the NHL is amazing, we don't have his ice time. So we have no idea what actual role he plays. If you go by offense, he didn't have big roles on either of those teams, but obviously that's not what he did. So I can't tell you that he was playing like lots of minutes on either of those teams because, you know, don't have the data. Yeah. Well, it's uh, the 93 team had Kirk Muller. Yeah. Uh, and Carbo, I, I believe you would have called them your one, two centers. Uh, but yeah. I think, but Dafus also played center, so I well, might have been the one-two-three combo and have Carbo take care of the. Was he playing defensive. center back then? Because he was a left wing initially, right? Yeah. I don't uh, know if he was playing left wing or center when he was on the Hams. I don't know. I I honestly can't remember. I I, I remember that playoff run, but I don't remember who was doing what because they just had so many different. He's listed as a left wing, but that doesn't mean shit, right? Like. Yeah. Yeah. Maybe he did play. Maybe he did play left wing because they already had the one-two centers there. Um, well, also LeBeau, I, I believe too. he played both. Um, like LeBeau has the same number of points uh, as oh, Carbon in the playoffs. <laughs> but he also he also played way less. He was hurt. LeBeau was hurt too. Yeah, so that's probably yeah. why you forgot about him. Yeah, well, I I mostly remember from NHL '94. You couldn't stop the bloody guy. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, maybe uh, maybe I'm not remembering uh, Carbo. I mean, he's listed as a center a lot of times, like especially yeah. you know on his like playing pages. But I guess he was just sort of so good defensively that you could move him around wherever you needed him. Yeah. Um, but but as for '86, if you go by points, 
he was the number two behind Bobby Smith. Um, because the centers on, on that team didn't score very much because like Brian Scrudlin's there with like six points in 20 games. And, yeah. and uh, I, Riche is listed as a center for some reason. Okay. Uh, but I think sometimes when they played all over the place, they just went, ah, put him down as center. <laughs> we <yeah>. don't know. <laughs> I didn't, I didn't know Riche played center, but he's like, so the, the top four centers on the 86 team are Bobby Smith, uh, Carboneau, uh, Scrudland, and Richet, which doesn't make any sense in terms of, but that's by points, right? We don't have the yeah. ice time numbers. So I, I think I, I think Richet was really young that year, though, so he might have been. Yeah, it was nineteen. Put him on the fourth line and yeah. uh, just sort of let him go there, and then he became the big goal scorer. I think either the next year or the year after that, when he was like a fifty goal scorer. Yeah. Um, so yeah, Carboneau's those three cups, and then he also has. Uh, he was he was on the runner-up Stars that Leighton was also on. Uh, he was on the runner-up Habs in '89 as well. Um, and then he was also in some conference finals in 84 and 87 on the Habs and uh, in 98 on the Stars. So tons of playoff success. In fact, so much playoff success. Um, I think I forgot to mention his playoff numbers earlier, which are uh, uh, he's seventh all time in playoff games. I forgot to mention that 231 playoff games, 93 points in 231 games. So, you know, not amazing, but not awful either. But seventh all-time in games, and so that means no international success. He's like the polar opposite of Leighton in that regard, right? Like, he just—I think he was in the playoffs every year, basically, and so he just never played in the, uh, you know, the end of year. Like, he was never at the World Championships because, yeah. you know, he was in the playoffs all the time. Even when he was on St. Louis, he was in the playoffs. So, um, yeah, he just missed it. It looks like he just missed it in '96, and that's it. Man, yeah, That's I mean, really impressive. Well, he didn't he didn't play in in eighty eighty one because uh, he was he must he was called up for two games for Montreal and then he didn't play again until eighty two eighty three. But from that point on, um, yeah, he uh, he was in the playoffs almost every year. So this is the reason why I wanted to hold off my judgment on Layden and until this point, because I agree with you. I think Carboneau sets a precedent. Because if Carboneau's in, and I'm not saying he shouldn't be in necessarily, you know, I think Leighton has to be in. Because Leighton has the same number of um, awards, of the exact same award. He doesn't have the same amount of, uh, like, overall votes, you know, over the years. But he also played Leighton. He was way less healthy. And he was a better offensive player than Carboneau was. At least he was allowed to be a better offensive player. Let's put it that way. We know Carboneau was a great junior player, but like, you know, Carboneau didn't get the opportunities laden and got to play on a on a first line in the NHL. But I I just I don't know. I, I look at these and I think that like you can like you can pick like who's by stats anyway, like who wins here, Leighton or, or Carboneau. And I don't think that Carboneau wins those conversations so much that it's so obvious that Carboneau belongs and Leighton and doesn't belong. Yeah, I'm uh, I'm leaning that way too in terms of like the the role that they played and how important they were to uh, to cup winning teams um, and the the uh, the like generally acknowledged level of how great they were defensively. Um, you know, where if they're not winning the Selkie, they're definitely in the running for it every single year. Um, yeah. There's there's definitely 
I, I think if Carbo goes in, I think the case for letting in gets a lot stronger, right? So now that yeah. he's in, then like when they're starting to look at letting in a few years, like are we gonna like, you know? And if you add in his international resume, which I tend to, I consider it the NHL Hall of Fame, and don't try not to consider that stuff, but a lot of people do. And then you also consider uh, he's got a cup to his name, um, got all those Selkie trophies. He's also very, very high on the uh, list of Finnish scorers all time. Like a lot of that stuff starts to add up as like, maybe we're putting him in. Um, and I don't necessarily think I would have, but. Well, so that's that, the thing, right? I know. Yeah. Cause, cause we don't have Carbo's advanced stats. So maybe, maybe we, we, we would be missing out on like, holy crap, Carbo was better than we thought. And. Um, exactly. And ice time is the other thing. We don't, we have two years of his ice time and he was playing like under 18 minutes a game cause he was 38. Yeah, exactly. Right? So, so, so yeah, that's that's the thing for me is like I don't deny that Carboneau was one of the best, as far as we know, at least uh, you know one of the best defensive forwards in the history of the sport. Fine. Um, but because of our lack of information, for those of us who didn't watch him during his prime, which I did not, um, I I think he sets the precedent that you have you have three Selkies, you are in the Hall of Fame because like. That's yeah. that's what most people are going to go by because yeah. we can't, you know, old guys will can say like, oh well, you know, people are going to say, uh, I I can already see, that. I think people are probably already doing this. Well, I watched both Carbono and Leiden and play, and Carbono was way better defensively. Well, prove it to me, you know. Yeah, you can't exactly. just say that, you know, yeah. and like, oh, we could go through a game film for for forever um, to try and make some kind of case, but because we don't have ice time and because we don't have uh even possession stats or something like that and all we have is plus minus in terms of defense back then which is and defensive point shares which are based on plus minus um we have to we have to go by the things we do have which is you know the awards and the voting and and frankly carbono had way more of an opportunity to get more awards voting than Landon did because he played way longer I'm sorry. I'm always coughing. I never cough except for when I'm recording. It's ridiculous. Anyway, <laughs> I I just uh, I I think that like I I I don't think that Layden belongs in the Hall of Fame necessarily, but I think Carbono's induction makes it really hard for me to say Layden doesn't belong in the Hall of Fame. Yeah, like to give him a to give him a, a you know slam dunk no. Now I'm like before Carbo gets in and before we look at their career side by side, you know what? I, I remember Carbo's got the three cups. That's probably why they're giving him the nod. And I don't even know if he belongs now. I'm looking. Layton's only got one cup, but he was in a final in another one. Dallas had a couple of runs late. Like he was super important for them for so many years. And I'm like, he, he had the three Selkies and I, I don't feel like like Bergeron wins it almost annually now because he's also yeah. going to put up 75 points. And the thing is, I think a lot of people would go, well, yeah, he scores, so he's not that Like, yeah, he's that good defensively and he scores. Like, you're never taking that away from him unless, you know, Jonathan Taves has a year like that or, um, you know, some other players get consideration where some media watch them a lot and they go, that guy's actually fantastic defensively. Um, but usually it's a guy like Taves, Bergeron, et cetera. And these days, back then it was like, the NHL was so 
clutch and grabby, so defensively oriented that a guy like that was such an important player. And so who had, like, it was a genuine competition. Almost every team has a guy who plays this role. Yeah. Who actually, like, completely shuts down the opposition. And Leighton may have benefited from playing the, on those stacked, trap it up, win every game 2-1 Dallas Stars. But, like, he clearly was a, a, easily a top five defensive player during that era uh, in the league. And he was still putting up 40, 50 points a season, right? So, I mean, it's... You know, he's, he's a really useful player. And if you consider how hard it was to score 40 or 50 points in that era, he's a f- f- formidable player. And I, I think the era comparison is what would make you think Lettinen belongs less than Carbon. And just we don't have enough stats to sort of say, well, here's the defensive measure for Carbo that we can compare to Lettinen. We don't even really have it for Lettinen compared to what we have yeah. access to now, right? So um, it's so difficult to say. But I feel like if Carbo's in, like, Leighton's going to get strong consideration. And if they ever have a year where there's not, like, four absolute slam dunk Hall of Famers and they're looking to maybe uh, bolster the Finnish content or to acknowledge um, that era a little bit more and some of the players who were so good defensively, um, although that starts to scare me that they're going to, like, throw in, like, Kevin and Darian Hatcher or something like that. Well, well, here's the, here's the one thing. <laughs> here's the one thing to, like to stop the slippery slope fears is that these guys both won three awards, That's you know? True. So yeah. one thing you can say is if Leighton does get in, people start getting worried about like just anyone being inducted. Well, how many guys have three selkies, you know, there's like six of them or five of them, you know, you can put all of them in the hall of fame and then you don't have to worry about it anymore. Yeah. You know, I, I, I don't know. I mean, there might not even be, fu- uh, uh, I'm going to actually, while we're, before we move on to Shorty Green, I'm just going to double check how many have, because uh, I think it's probably, it's it's Datsuk, it's uh, Carbono, it's Leidenden, it's Bergeron, it's Ganey. Yeah, that's it. Yeah. So that's it. Like, so you haven't, you don't, so you haven't opened the floodgates. Yeah. You know, like, and, and the next guys on that list, well, Fedorov's already in. Brenda Moore, we talked about already, and I think we both, you know, felt like bubbly, but like, yeah. that wouldn't be offensive. If Kopitar makes it, that's not offensive. And then you get the other guy with two is Pekka. So that yeah. that gets a little more difficult. But he's more of a Leidenden case, right? Because he scored yes. so little, just like Leidenden did. But like, if you induct Leidenden because you inducted Carbono, I don't think you're opening the floodgates to just any old guy because that's like true. they have three awards. Yeah. <laughs> like it's, you know, uh, someone's gonna have to. Uh, do a little bit of work to get on that list. Anyway, I'm just, I, I, I do, I feel like a precedent has been set and it's a precedent that didn't exist before. Um, or maybe it sort of existed, but it existed for different awards, but I'm not necessarily super worried. It's going to cause a flood of other guys. I just think it's interesting and it's not one that I would have necessarily chosen to set if I were a voter. Um, I don't know about Carbono because the thing is I didn't watch those Habs teams. Right. And, for me, I do wonder to what degree Carbono playing on the Habs shaped his like legend as like one of the top couple defensive forwards of all time. And I'm not saying he isn't. I just wonder to what degree that affected the perception, right? Whereas like yeah. someone else in the league who was like like uh, 
Craig Ramsey, who who we were going to talk about with regard to Carboneau, but we're uh, I think I'm gonna I think we should save him for Bob Gainey. Oh yeah. Um, like Craig Ramsey, he doesn't get any respect, but um, fulfilled this role for the Sabers for a decade before the war existed, basically, and got one at the very end, you know. Yeah. And like, there's no like big campaign for him being in the Hall of Fame, as far as I know. So yeah. it's it's just worth thinking about these things, I feel like. And that's not to say that Carbono isn't one of the best defensive forwards all the time. He probably is. Yeah. He's, More than likely. He's, he's definitely up there, you know. I mean, yeah. yeah. For, for for him to win three straight Selkies, I mean. And get nominated uh, top five is, uh, what was it, eight times? Yeah, yeah. It's really. Nine impressive. times. Sorry. Nine. All right. Lastly, we have a. a confusing as hell player to talk about uh who is in who is in the hall of fame for reasons that don't have anything to do with his offensive ability as well but unlike Carvano, is not in the hall of fame for reasons that have anything to do with his play on the ice either which makes it really hard to decide whether or not he actually belongs his name is shorty green he played in the nhl for four years from 1923 to 1927 um and only two of those seasons would be quality by our standards but as we've talked about many times in the mid to late 20s there was a bit of a slowdown in scoring compared to the early uh teen, the late teens and early 20s and then when the league exploded in the like in 29 or 30 um he only scored 56 points in 103 games so you might already be wondering why is this guy in the hall of fame there is a reason um Era-wise, uh, of the uh, 33 players to play in at least two full seasons between 27, uh, 23 and 27, um, he is in the top 15 in goals, top 17 in assists, top 17 in points. So not a great... This is a league of like four teams. <laughs> so it wasn't a star. His 48-game average was 26 points. Uh, his three-year peak was a little bit better than that, 20 points per 32 games, because that's when uh, um, that's when uh, he was he was he sort of played he played in an era when the seasons were 30 games long and then 48. Uh, he never uh, played in the NHL playoffs, and this is where his Hall of Fame came in. Case comes in. He didn't play in the NHL playoffs because he was on the Bulldogs, who were the best team. Um, in the NHL in 1920, I don't know what year this was. Uh, I don't remember. I guess I should have had this up in front of me. Um, the Bulldogs uh, were the best team in the league in, I think, 25. Yeah, 25. And actually, Shorty Green was, that was the one year Shorty Green had a really good year. And there was a conflict between them and their owner. And they struck and it was the first strike in the history of the NHL. Wow. And the NHL, in its in infinite wisdom, stripped them of their league title and uh, awarded it to the Habs or somebody. Good Lord. And then yeah, that caused... Sorry, I said the Bulldogs. The Tigers. The Hamilton well, Tigers. <laughs> they, they're, the thing is, in my defense, the Hamilton Bulldogs were an AHL team that existed when I lived in Hamilton. So... Um, then and I, was do, the, I do think there was a Quebec Bulldogs team as well. Yes, there was a Quebec Bulldogs. So I was conflating Hamilton Bulldogs and Quebec Bulldogs. Uh, anyway, the Hamilton Tigers franchise folded as a result, 
and they moved to uh they have and but they uh resuscitated as uh, the new york americans and uh and actually green kept playing despite all that he played for two more seasons on the americans as well as everybody else on that team or most of them anyway they were all purchased by the the new franchise um so that is not the best version of things you're gonna you know i just read about it i'm sure there are people who know the story much better than that but basically my understanding is he is in the hall of fame because he uh he was a leader in that strike and it was basically the first move towards any kind of serious labor um you know labor rights for nhl players and uh as you know as a result he didn't play in the playoffs that year and who knows what he would have done and that team was the best team in the league i don't know that they were so much better than everybody else but they were the best team in the league um and uh yeah so they uh well they were they they did the same number of points as the saint patrick's but at a better record yeah um but they were like they were the best by like uh, hawk. Uh, well, anyway, they were they were good, and who knows what they would have done, and they didn't play in the playoffs as a result of the the strike. So his his one good season was cut short by the league and the owners, and um, and so that that begs a question. But we'll I guess we'll get to it at the end of this. Um, so he obviously his just like any 1920s player his, his adjusted numbers are uh, hilarious and ridiculous. His 82 game average would be 143 points in 82 games, which is obviously nonsense. I don't know what is wrong with their formula from back then, but like it, I guess it, it tries to substitute additional assists or something because they didn't have you know the one assist and was only credited on some goals, and it's just ridiculous. Like they they need to come up with a new version of the formula for for the 20s. Um, and, uh, he was never traded, but of course he was transferred when they became the Americans. He also, uh, he had, before he played in the NHL, unlike so many of his contemporaries, he was actually playing amateur as opposed to, uh, sorry, just bringing up his Wikipedia page, which has his actual amateur stats. So he would play, he played amateur way longer than other people of his generation, yeah. And so he doesn't have like the PCHA stats and WCHL stats that like the other guys do, which is another reason why his like hockey case for being in the hall is super iffy. Um, but he was a he was a star um, in the um, in the Northern Ontario Hockey Association. Oh, I th- I thought it was New Orleans. Oh, that's funny. <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah, lots of ice. I'm down. just messing with you. No, I know, I know. Um, and um, you know he had one ridiculous season in there, and then other seasons which were fine. But it's it's hard. Who knows about like what the yeah. games were like in those amateur leagues? And then he also played uh, for the Ontario Hockey Association, which was um, the senior league at the time. And he played there before that for another version of the Hamilton Tigers, and was also it seems a star in those. But yeah, weirdly, so he was in he you know he went to World War One like so many of these players we talked about, and then when he came back, he played amateur instead of pro. Yeah. Um, which means he doesn't really have any. Like I said, he doesn't have the. We can't talk about like how good he was in the yeah. PCHA. I mean, all all you know is that, you know, the the amateur leagues probably still had some fine players at that time. 
Um, We we don't know for sure that the pro game was miles ahead of the amateur game at that point because the game was so early in its development. Um, But you do know that in the leagues that he played in, um, you know, maybe maybe his best season in the NHL is not quite to this standard, but he was a two point a game player or since since he had a very low number of assists, pretty much a two goal a game player. Yeah. Um, both of those leagues. So he's he's got some he's got some really um, he's got some really high totals. So he must have been, if if not the best player, certainly a top five or top ten player in the league. Well, and presumably that's why he got into the NHL later, right? Is like someone realized that he was, you know, they had an NHL talent playing in the amateur leagues and was like, yeah. oh, you, and he was also like you know, relatively old at that point. Um, I, when he came into the league, I think he was, was he in his late twenties or something? I can't, I gotta look that up. Um, yeah, he was 27 when he came into the NHL. Yeah. So, you know, here was toiling away as a amateur, even though he had, he could play in the NHL, assume we, he didn't get paid. He did have that one good year in the NHL where he was a, a top 10 player. Um, you know, t- uh, where he uh, scored uh, 27 points in 28 games. So, uh, but that that was just the one year. And I guess that's probably, you know, right, right then is like, you know, forwards tend to peak earlier than that, right? So he was probably just getting a little old. And so he doesn't, um, he doesn't have uh, any NHL playoff success, but he did win the Allen Cup in, in, in 1919. And he might have been one of the best players on that team. It's really hard to find information about it. And he also might have been an Allen, on an Allen Cup challenger mm-hmm. in 1915. But the the sources are mixed up. I said I saw one source that said he was on a team that played for the Allen Cup, and another one didn't list that team. So for that year, so who the hell knows? But um, <laughs> the fact is, at least one of the two years, but possibly both of them, his amateur team was one of the best amateur teams in the country. All of which begs the question. Yeah. Does he belong as a player or a builder? And I don't um, know. That's, it's a really hard one because we don't know the, the level of the amateur leagues in which he played. You would, you would presume that if at age 27 he was able to have uh, a great season in the NHL where he was a top 10 player. Had he been in the league a lot younger, you would assume that he could have replicated that quite easily. Right. Yeah. Uh, so maybe he was just one of those guys who didn't believe in getting paid to play hockey. It's entirely um, possible. Maybe he just wanted to stay closer. to. Um, but and, the funny thing that, about that, the funny thing about that assumption. Though. Yeah. But like, exactly. Yeah. If he was a guy who didn't think they should be played, why then did he lead, uh, paid? Why then did he lead a strike for better pay? Right. Um, who knows? He might've just not had the right opportunities to get into the, in the pro leagues for some reason, maybe because of the war, you know, maybe he had to work yeah. his way because yeah. of being away. Maybe he had to work his way into like people's minds again, because you know, you didn't have the internet. If you're playing in, uh, in uh, yeah. the Northern Ontario Hockey League in Sudbury, maybe there were no scouts. I mean, it doesn't make sense on the other end because yeah, he was playing for the Hamilton. <laughs> but he was playing on the Hamilton Tigers before that in, in Hamilton for an amateur league. So who the hell knows why? Um, you know, the year they won the Allen Cup too. Maybe back then the thing was too, except for 
um, like players who went all the way out to Vancouver and played for the millionaires. Um, maybe he had a job where he actually made enough money that he was like, why do I want to turn pro? Like, I'll just keep playing it as an amateur. And I have a job that pays me just fine. Like, you know, maybe he was, you know, well-educated and actually had a, a job that paid him quite well. Uh, maybe he had some family money we don't know about. So he was quite comfortable. Um, I don't know. I don't, I don't know why he wouldn't have joined and then later join and insist that, Hey, we're not getting paid enough. Yeah. Um, so maybe just, maybe just by the time he joined, the salaries were getting so good that he's like, oh, I can't make this kind of money doing anything else. Like not even remotely close. I'm going to have to join the pro leagues for a few years and try to, you know, put my nest egg away for the, for the upcoming depression that I know about before. Um, <laughs> um, you know, I, I, I don't know why he would have, suddenly joined and then led that strike but i don't i don't know his background enough it's really yeah. it's really tricky and it's so hard to find out information you know like maybe he was an amateur and he was a lawyer and he didn't need the money and then he's like hey these players are getting screwed i'm gonna step in and be a lawyer for them like yeah. I, I i haven't read enough about that strike and is there even that much information on it right um yeah i mean there's, there's some information about it but yeah, there's not like I don't I yeah exactly it would be good to like know someone who's done a lot of research about it because like it's I don't you know all I've read about is all on Wikipedia on various Wikipedia pages and they're all sort of incomplete you know um, basically the gist of it is the team said they had no money the players found out that they had lots of money they demanded a bonus <laughs> yeah it's, it's shocking I know. They demand an owners don't do that nowadays. Owners do never do that. They never do that, <laughs> and they certainly don't do that when they go to cities asking for new stadiums. Um, no, not, not at all. Yeah. We've we've lost so much money on this team. Be like, have you counted the TV revenue? Well, no, of course not. We don't know what it's going to be. What? Yeah. <laughs> um, anyway, I mean, I I think he belongs in as a builder because of his important absolutely. role in this moment. But yeah. I don't I don't see a case for a hockey player personally. I I, I think if you. I think given the era in which he played, I would listen to a case. Yeah. Um, just because uh, we we really don't know what his reasons were for not being in the NHL, but it sounds like he was clearly yeah. good enough to play yeah. in the NHL. Um, yeah. Seems like it. And it. Yeah, I mean, it's... It's it's a it's a tough one, but I I think for a lot of these guys, that's why I would have the builder category. Where you're like you were an important figure in the early part of hockey. You're yeah. clearly not. You know, you're not New Zealand alone. You're not Howie Morenz. You're not one of these guys. You're not yeah. Fred Cyclone Taylor. If you're not like a name that like oh yeah like you know I I don't recall him being mentioned in the uh, hockey of people's history thing. I I may not have watched that part as closely as I should have, and maybe it was mentioned for a minute, but. Um, you know, it's not like they kept talking about him over and over again. So I, as, as memories fade and, but maybe the people who put him in were like, yeah, remember what a key guy he was into, um, getting us what we, the little money we have now. <laughs> I, I mean, I assume that's why he's in. I assume that yeah. it must be. Cause I mean, it's not his NHL career. That's for sure. Right. Yeah. Like, yeah. um, and he was, he was the team captain. Uh, which I guess I forgot to mention, but that's like, presumably that had a lot to do with, you know, him being sort of seen as the leader of this, uh, um, of this strike. Right. And uh, I mean, Billy Birch is also credited as a leader, but like, I think that, you know, that's important. 
it's an important part in the history of the game. You can't you can't not talk about sports and and, and you can't ignore labor. Um, but yeah, I just don't know that it makes sense to induct him as a player. I think as a builder makes way more sense. But it's a it's not a clear cut line, right? Like it's a spectrum more than anything. It's blurry. <laughs> yeah. Um, he just to finish that off, he said, "We would rather play to a Hamilton audience than to any other on the circuit. We would be more than pleased to represent Hamilton again in the NHL for the benefit of the fans who have so generously patronized our games." But this is final. We do intend to ever play again for the present management. We do not intend to ever play again for the present management. There's a word missing in the Wikipedia quote of his letter. Mm-hmm. Um, so, uh, to recap, how do you feel about Layden? Um, uh, it's a voted award, and I typically try to take those with a grain of salt, but he was very clearly worthy of that award um and so i'm i, I i'll give him uh because carbo's in yes <laughs> that's where i am too because carbono's in i think he's he belongs if yes. carbono wasn't inducted then i would i would say no yeah i, I would agree with that completely carbono well i'm gonna have to say yes now right <laughs> yeah 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 i don't know what to do like with him yeah. i don't know what to do it's it's so hard but he was he was such an important player yeah um for, for his entire career um, and, and was well-recognized as an, an, a defensively outstanding player before the whole league switched to let's all learn how to play defense or at least how to hold on to people pretty good. Yeah. <laughs> um, so I, I don't know, three Selkies and two Cups in like a seven-year period, I'm going to have to give him the nod on that one. Um, okay. And he's st- still the last Canadian's captain to raise the Cup. So. Yeah, yeah that's true. That's true. Probably, probably not the last one to give the middle finger. <laughs> probably not. Yeah. Maybe not in public though, eh? <laughs> the poor and, guy. Man. Yeah, yeah. I didn't, I didn't know that. That's so ridiculous. Yeah, and then he, when he came back as a coach too, he had a very good record. Yeah. Um, they made the playoffs twice. They beat Boston one year. That was the year Montreal went nuts and flipped cop cards after. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. And then they were promptly destroyed by. R.J. Umberger and the rest of the fires. Um, and then the year after, Carbo didn't even finish the season. They fired him before the playoffs. And they made the playoffs. So it's just like, what was going on? Like, man. So he, yeah. had, he had three years as the Habs coach and uh, made the playoffs twice and had a, a very convincing winning record. Um, yeah, who knows? I don't know why he was let go. I'm sure a lot of people still like were like, why did we let that guy go? He's winning. Who, who knows why Montreal does any of the thing many of the things they do oh, they, they, they finished first in the eastern conference uh, in 2008 when he was the uh, uh when, when he was the coach i had forgotten then, he was uh, the coach of that team yeah i yeah. totally forgot that and then yeah. they, they i was reading his wikipedia as we were discussing to check up on his uh because i knew his junior stats were outstandingly good but i yeah. couldn't remember the exact numbers of course and yeah. uh, and then I was like, oh yeah, he did coach the Habs. I, I was living in Japan at the time, so I have yeah. little recollection other than R.J. Umberger scoring eight goals in five games and single-handedly eliminating the Canadians. <laughs> I had totally forgotten about yeah. that too. I w- apparently yeah. I was watching the Western Conference playoffs that year. I don't know what's going on. Well, West is best, right? I mean, come yeah, on. absolutely. <laughs> well, I, I mean that's how I thought about it at the time for sure. If the Leafs weren't in, I was like, I was always watching the Western Conference instead. I just um, always watch the West no matter. Yeah. <laughs> Um, and Shorty Green. 
Uh, Shorty Green, I would say, as a builder. Yeah. I'm not going to take him out because there's so many guys who are in that we don't know what they were like and we don't know what yep. the level of competition was and all that stuff. But if I was voting now and I would like had all the information, I probably wouldn't put him in um, just based on stats. But, you know, there's a, there's a lot of guys who deserve to be in and builder builder categories. And there's a lot of old old timers that we've looked at that are we add in sort of like, well, he was also a great coach. Well, he was also yeah. a great manager. Yeah. It's like so yeah. if he was the first strike guy, um, you know, had an amateur career which he took break from to go serve in world war one came back and was still an amateur like i don't know there's something to be said for you know sort of clinging to the the romantic ideals of hockey as like a gentleman's sport uh before it became a, a big cash grab for everybody um and i who can blame the guy right apparently it was they had uh they, they didn't get paid for training camp the league yeah. lengthened the uh the number of games 24 to 30 yeah. Um, and then they found out they weren't getting paid for the playoffs either. And they're just like, well, come on, man. Like, yeah. And players still don't get paid very much for the playoffs compared to what their normal salaries are. It's pretty much a, we're doing this for free and cause we want to win the cup. But yeah. uh, it's, I, I think they had a pretty valid reason, especially when they found out the owner had still had plenty of money. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Oh yeah. I, I mean, I, I think he, he's important. I just, I think maybe he's a builder rather than a, yeah player just because like yeah, the stats which, are not which i would be fine with but I, I would be fine with but i i also would not like to be the guy who has to draft his family a letter say we're moving him around oh yeah yeah <laughs> um, i mean so i'm telling you like perfect world important. right yeah, yeah 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 all right that's uh that's all for us for this episode and uh in the next episode we are going to be talking about vaclav nedomansky who was also inducted at the same time as uh Carbono. so look forward to that and we will see you next time. Take care.